The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers are in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at Sons of Liberty Media.com, and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's show from yesterday. So if you didn't get the chance to see that, great title for that too, by the way. Some people are so... Uh, what is, some people are so poor, the only thing they have is money. That's true. That's true. It really is. If you didn't get a chance to hear that uh, or watch that, you can do so at sonsoflibertymedia.com up until 3 p.m. today, at which time Bradley will be live in that little area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Uh, click on the play button, blow it up whatever device you've got there, and uh, look for the rumble icon in the bottom right-hand corner. And click on that, and you can join us in the chat on Rumble. we got a lot of good friends over there. Good to see you guys this morning, and um, love to have you guys over there with us as well. Right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, it goes out between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern, and uh, please sign up for that. It includes the Morning Show archive as well as the other articles we have from other contributors at SonsofLibertyMedia.com. Also, we are streaming live to Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live. There is the channel you want to look for. Be sure to subscribe there. And then also, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there. And we appreciate those guys giving us a spot there. Finally, if you'd like to help keep us out there doing what we're doing and you agree with our message, there's a donate button at the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com. Click on that and make a one-time donation. Or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of liberty. And uh, we do appreciate you very, very much. Now, <clears throat> I got to tell you, I was tired last night. And... Uh, uh, my son-in-law called me up, and he was very excited about some things that he's learning uh, going through the scriptures, which is great. I'm glad to hear that. And I was just so tired. <laughs> I was I was struggling to do it, but I, I wanted to encourage his excitement of the things he was seeing in the scripture. And um, I got up this morning. Um, some of that conversation is still in my mind. And uh, so I wanted to go through some things. Some of these we have been through before. Some of them not. Uh, but certainly not, you know, specific to this. Now, 
some of you may remember when uh, we went through the 70 weeks of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9 and um, why it is so important that the people of God understand what Daniel was talking about. And in Daniel chapter 9, he is not talking about our future. He is talking about something that happened in the past. It is about the Christ who would come, the Messiah, and the work that he would perform. And um, so I want to kind of, let's let's just kind of read that. We'll kind of recap it. And if you did not get to to hear that show, and by the way, we had um, Pastor Chuck Baldwin came on to talk about that with me. The title of the show was The 70 Weeks of Daniel, Why This Prophecy is Important, Why You Should Get It Right. And um, I'll have that in the archive. If you didn't get to hear that, you'll get to hear the the reasoning and the understanding and the context of Daniel chapter 9 uh, more fully than what I'm, I'm about to do here. But uh, what I want to do is there's several passages of Scripture I just want to bring in here about the abomination of desolation. Now, you may be out there and you've heard that. And you've been taught something like, well, the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist, and he comes into a rebuilt temple, and he sets himself up as God, and all this kind of stuff. And um, and that's not at all what that's not at all what's going on. And I'm going to show it to you from the Old and the New Testament uh, that that's not what it is. Um, that it has nothing to do with that, and it's not out in our future. It happened just like Jesus said it would in the first century. Okay, and uh, so and this has an impact because this desolation or this doing away with we're going to see that in just a second. I'm just kind of giving you an overview, so you'll be looking for these things. As the old covenant is done away with, the new covenant is established, and it's established as the writer of Hebrews says on better promises than the old covenant, because in the old covenant. When you had sacrifices that were offered for various things, listen, those sacrifices never, ever, never, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever took away sin. They just didn't do it. They were a picture of the one who would take away sin. And Matthew 121 says, his name shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he saves his people from their sin, their lawlessness. Okay? He saves them from their lawlessness. And I know we got people out there today that say, well, I just, I just go on sinning. Look, I, I'm, I'm a person who confesses my sin each day, just like the men of old, uh, the godly men of old, confess those sins before the Lord. If we say we don't have any sin, the Bible says we make God a liar. And yet, he is transforming those who are his into the image of his Son. Romans 8, 28 and following. He's doing that. That is the work he's doing in it, which means we should be sinning less, shouldn't it not? We should be walking away from sin. We should be fleeing from it. And we should be walking in the laws of God. We should be walking in obedience to him. Those, you know, a lot of people talk about revelation being future and all, and it says they are the ones who keep the commandments of Jesus, right? That's what it says. <clears throat> so um, if you got a problem with that, you have a problem with what the scripture says. So with that said, let's go over to Daniel chapter 9. 
<clears throat> excuse me, because uh, this kind of sets it up. And I, I could go through, I'm just going to scroll through here. I had scrolled down a little bit. But just so we get a little bit of context, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just I'm going to get to the part where we're going to go to the abomination of desolation. But if you are on the radio and you're listening, we're in Daniel chapter 9 right now. If you want to turn over to Matthew 24, if you want to turn over to Luke 21, hold your fingers there and stuff. And then if you just want to jump to Hebrews chapter 8, we'll be looking a little bit at 8, 9, and 10. Okay. But here, what we see is Daniel, if you recall, the context of what Dan, what's going on here in Daniel is Daniel is in Babylon. Uh, he and his people have been taken captive. Uh, he's clearly an older man now. He's not what he was in chapter one, where you see him come in and he's, you know, made part of the eunuchs and, you know, they, all the other, all the other stuff that came before the, the lion's den, the idols, uh, all of that stuff. He's a much older man now. And one of the things that is going on, one of the things that's going on is that Daniel has uh, been reading Jeremiah. And Jeremiah states that because the people had disregarded the commands of God to let the, the land lie and rest, Every seven years, they were to have a Sabbath for the land. They're not to. They're not to. They're not to plant on it and such. And they're let let the land rest. They wouldn't do that. So they had built up seventy Sabbaths, four hundred ninety years. They had built up these these Sabbaths that had to be restored. And so, God said, "I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon. They're going to take you away into captivity." And they did. They did. And Daniel was a part of that. Now, Daniel, understanding what God had said, understood that the time of completion of that chastisement upon the people was coming to an end and that God was going to bring them back to their land. And so he began to pray according to what God has said. Well, Tim, that's kind of stupid, don't you think? I mean, if God said it was going to happen, why are we praying for it? He's going to, because we're praying, look, when we pray, we should be praying Scripture. We should be praying what has been revealed to us. You know, the Bible talks about if we ask anything of Him, we know that we have the petition we have to ask of Him if it's according to His will. And what better way to know the will of God than to pray exactly what God said would happen, right? So this is what Daniel was doing. So he says um, in verse 2, because he does a little introduction here, the first year, he's telling us the time of Darius, the son of Hazarus, the seed of Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And then verse 2, in the first year of, the, of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And it ends with a final desolation, okay? And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity. And notice Daniel, nowhere in the entire um, text 
that I know of, do we see that Daniel ever committed sin? Now, we know he did because he was a man, okay? But notice what he does. We have sinned. He doesn't say, your people have sinned. He says, we. He lumps himself in with the people of God. He's like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, okay? So <clears throat> he goes on and he says, we have sinned have committed iniquity, have done wickedly, have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. So what is he talking about? They have departed from the law of God. They've departed from the law of God. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as it is this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, unto Israel that all that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against thee. And then he goes into more things. He talks about Israel transgressing the law uh, that they had been given, which is part of their covenant. And again, he over and over, he's making these references back to the fact that Israel has been those who have uh, violated God's law, and this is why they're under the judgment of God. Okay? Or under his, his hand of chastisement, because he's going to bring some of them back out. Uh, even the king is going to to give them money and give them the uh, the things that they need in order to go back and build Jerusalem again and build a wall around it. And we come down to um, verse 21. Okay, so you get sort of the, int I, I haven't read all of that, which I normally would do, but we've just got a lot of places we got to go today. So uh, with that said, Verse 21 says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, and let's back up to 20, and while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or the time of the sacrifice there. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. And the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. So what Gabriel says is the moment you started to pray and seek understanding about these things that you're reading in the scriptures, I was commanded to come to you. From the time you got on your knees and began to ask God to give you understanding, he sent me forth. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. God hears our prayers, and right when we right when we initiate them, you remember Paul says, even those of us now, we've been given the Spirit of God, and what happens? Even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. So God has not left us without the things that we need. But he says this, he says, At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I, was, uh, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved 
Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about Jerusalem. And he says there's a time period here. And that time period is for them. Why? Because they're the people of the old covenant. Okay? And what's going to happen in that 70 weeks? Well, there's six different things. Finish the transgression. Make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. And to seal up, seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And so he says this. Here's the times that he's going to give it. <clears throat> and we're going to hit these really quick because we're going to focus on what Jesus says is the completion of this and how this begins to usher in the new covenant. Okay? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So he says there's going to be a total of 69 weeks. Now, this, this term weeks, it literally means sevens, okay? And there is a passage in the Old Testament, I meant to pull that up too. There's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about where uh, Jacob was serving for Rachel. You remember that? You remember the story of Jacob? And uh, uh, he, he, had, he, he had the hots here for uh, Rachel. And as a result of that, he worked seven years for her, right? And then on the wedding day, uh, Rachel's daddy swapped out Rachel for Leah. And so he may ended up marrying Leah, and he's like, oh, man, you tricked me. What, what is going on here? And so dad says, well, if you want Rachel, you know, it's, it's proper that we give away the older first. If you want Rachel then you're going to have to serve me another seven years. And then he goes down and he says, fulfill her week. Okay. And I'll, I'll see. I'll, I'm not going to try to do that on the fly because I've got too much stuff here this morning. But I'll see if I can put that in the, uh, in the archive, the link to that, that scripture, so that you guys can check it out. But you can, you can read it when you see the story of Jacob and Leah and Jacob and Rachel. So he tells them here, there's going to be, so if we if we got a week is seven years, okay, and he says there's going to be seven weeks, that's forty nine years, and then you got the other one, the three score in two weeks, right? So you're going to have ah whatever those are. <laughs> two. Uh, excuse me, I've got a cough here. You've got those in there as well, and he says something's going to happen. He says the street shall be built again. And the wall, even in troublous times. And we do know that happened. We know that there was the decree from Cyrus to uh, send the people out of Babylon to go back and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls. Okay? And so, that's what was done. And when does, when does this time, when does this 490 years, when does the clock start counting on that? Is that somewhere out in the future? Nope. That was back when Cyrus sent them out to do that, when he gave that command, okay? So <clears throat> it says, though, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, 
Why? He's giving his life as a ransom for his people, right? And the people of the prince that shall come, this is talking about Rome, shall come or shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay? So all of this is about what's going on. And keep that in mind because when you go up to verse 24 that we read, all of these things that are accomplished um, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. All of those are done by one person. This is a Sunday school answer. Who's that person? Jesus the Christ, right? It was done by him. And this is saying the Messiah is going to be cut off after the three score and two weeks. So you had the 49 that was, that was done, the 49 years, the seven weeks that was accomplished to rebuild the city and the, the, uh, the, the wall. And the rest of the time led up to the time of Messiah, of the Christ. Guys, I, I'm telling you, even these, these people who say they don't believe the Bible or they're you know, really critical of the Bible and this, that, and the other, and they say, they'll still tell you, the majority of them will tell you that Daniel was written at least 100 years, even if they don't believe that it was written hundreds of years before. They'll at least say it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem and all this other stuff. So you still have where God is telling, even they're acknowledging God is telling something through Daniel that would happen before it happened. But he, he did it hundreds of years. Four or five hundred years before is what this is written. So then it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So if you add those up, the seven weeks and the three score and 62 weeks, you come up with 69 weeks of seven years. Okay. And then we're told that he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, keep in mind that what we read in verse 26 is it says after three score and two weeks. So we've been through the seven weeks to rebuild the, the city and the wall. Now we've went through the three score and two weeks and we're in the after stage of that. So what week are we in? We're in the 70th week here in this passage. And it says after the three score and two weeks, Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be cut off literally from the land of the living, but not for himself, but for his people, right? So why should we assume, and this is what people do, they come in here and they read Antichrist in the middle of this. This has nothing to do with Antichrist. Again, uh, you probably want to hear uh, the show we did on the term Antichrist. If you want to know what an Antichrist is, go read First and Second John. That's the only place in the Bible the term Antichrist is found. It's not in the book of Revelation. It ain't in the book of Daniel. It's not in the Gospels. It's in First and Second John. That's the only place you read it, and John defines what Antichrist is. Okay, It's a person who does not believe that Jesus, who is God, came in the flesh. Pretty simple. If you don't believe that, you can tell me you believe in Jesus. He's a great man. He was a prophet. He's a great teacher. You can tell me all that stuff. But if you do not believe he is God come in the flesh then you are holding to an antichrist doctrine, which makes you an antichrist. I mean, it's what it does. And so, why should we think 
that verse 27 is talking about an antichrist. It's not. Remember, the angel has said this is for your people, and he is set in to speak about the work of Christ, what he's going to do here. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. What covenant? Well, other than the old covenant that was in place at this time, what's the next covenant that's coming? And we know this in reading uh, passages like Jeremiah, where he talks about establishing the new covenant. That's what he has in mind. And it says he's going to confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, if you recall, Jesus comes on the scene, I believe it's Luke, who says he began to be about 30. So he's probably like 29 and a half. And we can count the ministry of Jesus according to the feasts that were observed in the Gospels. And Jesus ministered three and a half years. Okay? Before he was, before he laid down his life for his people. So there's a final week that's still going on here in this text. And he says he confirms the covenant with many for one of the one of those weeks, the last week, seven years. So Jesus comes on the scene. He ministers for three and a half, middle of that, right? In the middle of that week, that middle of that seven years is where he lays down his life, doesn't he? And if you recall, he's there at the table with his disciples. And what does he say to them? He breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my body which is given for you, take and eat, right? And then he takes the cup and he holds it up and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you, or excuse me, shed for many. That's the term he uses. The blood of the new covenant shed for many. What do we read in Daniel? He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, that's right in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years in, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This is not talking about Antichrist. If you have somebody telling you this, either they don't know how to read in context, or they are just in such an error and won't be corrected because it's, it's plain and clear. Jesus confirmed the new covenant in his blood for many in the midst of the final week of Daniel. That's what he did. And he said, there's going to be an overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And you say, well, Tim, it says he's going to cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. So there's got to be a new temple done for this, for this Antichrist. Well, wait a minute. Where are you getting that? It didn't come here. There is no Antichrist here. This is Christ. And this is what people do. They, so they, they want to pin the, I don't know what the fascination is with pinning the tail on the Antichrist stuff. They want to they want to focus they they think they know more about Antichrist and you ask them about Christ and they're clueless except oh well he forgives sins no he, he, there's much more than that there's much more than that 
And so I, I'm wanting to set the, the, the kind of where we're going with this. Now, real quickly, we're going to cover some couple of texts. And again, I'm going to hit just the bottom parts of, of what we need to do because I don't want to read all of these through here. But Matthew 23, we have talked about before. We went through the whole chapter. We show you Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy. He has been doing it since, oh, about Matthew 21, Matthew 20. Uh, with the Pharisees, and it's like he doesn't give them a break. He's just in their face about their hypocrisy. He keeps pronouncing judgments on them, failing to repent. And then in Matthew 23, it's like, okay, I'm done with you. It's kind of like uh, Genesis 6 where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is not always going to strive with man. It's kind of like that for them. I I'm not striving with you anymore. And he ends this way. that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel under the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. By the way, when Jesus says this, I believe he is putting the bookends about what is the word of God. I hear some of this crazy nonsense. Oh, well, it was the Council of Nicaea that gave us the Bible. No, it wasn't. The Council of Nicaea gave us what we see as the canon, but the Bible was already recognized as the books of the Bible that were in that we have in the Bible were always recognized by the people of God as authoritative from God. Okay? And what Jesus is saying is from the first book to the last book of the Old Testament, all the blood of these righteous men is coming. The judgment for that blood is coming upon this generation. And why is that? Did this generation kill those people? Did they kill Abel? Did they kill Zacharias? No. But they're going to kill the Son of God. They're going to kill the Son of God. They're going to, I mean, he lays down his life, of course, but they're the ones who are doing that. So he goes on and he says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And then he, he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together? And again, you remember I made distinction here. He talks to Jerusalem. This, the, he's, he's referencing those who he's just pronounced these woes on. You, you, you religious people out here, you killed the prophets, and then when they're dead and gone, you, you wash their graves and you talk about how great they are. And then he says, how often would I have gathered thy children, not you, but your children, together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks, chickens under her wings, and you would not. And you remember the, the transdelusional who tried to say that, well, Jesus was a little bit into drag because he called himself a mother hen. No, he's saying, like one. Just like a hen gathers her chickens, I wanted to gather your children. But ye would not. You stood in the way. You wanted to stand in, in my way of gathering them. And so he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Remember, he's standing in the temple and he does it. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then he immediately goes to Matthew 24. 
And I'm just going to hit this real quick, and then we're gonna, I'm going to kind of jump down uh, through the text here a little bit, because some of this I've already covered in another show, so you can, you can listen to that if you'd like to. And Jesus went out. This is immediately after he says that. Jesus went out, departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, this is Herod's temple. It's, it's been being built for many years. It will finally be completed just before it's destroyed. Somewhere around 67, 68 AD, it's completed. Okay? So it's not even fully completed yet. And so the disciples are showing him all the buildings of the temple. And it's like he goes there every day to teach, right? For three and a half years, he's been there since he's a little boy. He knows what it's like. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Or the term here is normally translated the end of the world, or the end of the age. Okay? Because remember, they don't even think he's going to die in a couple of days. It's just a few days before his crucifixion. They don't even believe that, much less some idea of him returning or any of this kind of stuff. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many will come in my name, saying, I'm Christ, shall deceive many. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. These are the beginning of sorrows. You know, don't, don't worry yourself over that. And then he, and this is why. I can't take serious, you know, and we've had at least one guy come on the show, even though I told him, if you come on the show and you say this stuff, I'm going to have to correct it. But he come on and say, well, we're living in Matthew 24. No, we're not. No, we're not. And I can show you why. One, Jesus is answering in context when that temple in the first century is going to be destroyed. And was it destroyed in the first century? Yes, it was. It was destroyed in the first century. But look at this. Then shall they deliver you. Notice, again, Jesus is speaking to an audience, and it ain't us. Now, we can draw application for it, but it's, he's not speaking to us. He's speaking to his disciples. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And by the way, you can see a lot of this in the book of Acts. You can see a lot of this taking place in the book of Acts. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Now, if you go over into the book of Colossians, what you're going to see there is you're going to see, I think it's in two places, where, where Paul says in the first century, the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Now, you either believe that or you don't believe it. But that's what he says. So keep that in mind. When ye, verse 15, therefore see the abomination, and, and again, notice who he's talking to. When ye, when ye see it, 
Who's he talking to? You got to get this in your head. He's talking to his disciples. When ye see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in all the world flee out of their houses and, you know, do all this. No, that's not what it says. It says, those which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Stop and think about that a second. Let those which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Not if you're in South Carolina or if you're in Russia or if you're in China or if you're in Africa or in Canada or Brazil. or No, those in Judea is very specific, very targeted. Flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath. For then, then at that time shall be great tribulation. You want to know when the great tribulation was? It ain't in our future. It was then in the first century. And why was that? <clears throat> he even says, Jesus says himself, then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And why? Why? Because they had killed the son, they killed all the prophets who were sent to them, and they killed the Son of God. And if you remember, Jesus told the story about the, the vine, the vineyard, and how there was a master, he, he constructed a vineyard, and he hired these guys to take care of the vineyard, and then he would send some of his servants to see what was going on and to receive some of the, the reward from the fruit of the vineyard. And those who were taking care of the vineyard would go and beat them and run them off and, without anything. And then Jesus says, well, I'll send them my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And they get the idea, well, we'll just kill the heir. This is the heir. We'll kill him, and we'll take it all for ourselves. And they do that. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees. He says, well, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to those wicked men who did that? And he's going to rip them to pieces. He's going to tear them apart. This is what he's saying. And the Bible says that the Pharisees who heard it perceived he was speaking about them. So we see it here. The Great Tribulation happened in the first century. The abomination of desolation is set up there. And you go, well, Tim, what is, what, what is, this, what, what is this abomination of desolation? I mean, you know, some people have, have talked about uh, various things of what they think the abomination of desolation is. Well, let's just stick with Scripture. Let's just stick with what it says in the scriptures. And if you go, now this happens in Matthew 24, verse 15. It's in basically the same place that Luke 21 is. Now, Luke 21 is just a parallel passage. It's Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. That's what this, this particular message that Jesus is giving. And here's what, um, here's what Luke says. So let's just lead up here so you get a sense of, of what's going on. So we talked about those who are going to 
you know, do these things to you and they're going to they're going to deliver you up and all these kinds of things. Look at verse 12 in Luke 21. And here's what he says. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues. That's pretty important, don't you think? One, he's talking to you, not you as in you hearing me, but you, his disciples. This is the same. This, this, it's the same scene. Different guy writing about it, but same scene. They're going to deliver you, the disciples, and persecute you, the disciples, delivering you, the disciples, up to the synagogues. Not to various nations and kings and all this other. That's not specifically what he has in mind, but he's saying the synagogues. And they did that. They did that. I mean, we got Paul running around Asia Minor, and he's got these Jews chasing him down, stoning him in one place, you know, bad-mouthing him in another place, doing all this stuff, trying to chase him down. They want to kill him just like they want to kill Jesus. And then it says, and you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. And they were. They were brought before Herod. They were brought before uh, Agrippa. Uh, Paul was brought before Agrippa and Festus. And uh, then he appealed to Caesar. Brought before him all, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated. Again, notice this over and over and over. Ye, 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 the disciples. Keep that in mind when you're reading this. He is not talking to you. I'm not saying you can't use this for application. You certainly can. But he's not directly talking to you or me. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience, possess your souls. And then he says this. And when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, it's important to understand, again, he says, ye, you disciples, when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Now, we read at the end of Matthew 23, the house was left desolate, right there, then and there. He's not going back to it. Okay? He's not going back to it. It's left desolate. It's going to be destroyed. And here he says, how do you know when that's going to happen? You see the abomination of desolation Daniel spoken of, or Daniel spoke of. And then he says, when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know the desolation thereof is nigh. And let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now stop and think about that for a second. These be the days of vengeance. Why, why is it a day of vengeance? Or days of vengeance? Well, why do we keep referencing Deuteronomy 28? It leads up to the days of vengeance. It's part of the curses that come on. 
Leviticus 26, same thing. The days of vengeance being fulfilled. You won't repent, it's going to come seven times worse. You won't repent, it's coming seven times worse. Okay? The days of vengeance upon a people who have broken God's covenant over and over and over and over, and now they've killed the Son of God. And God's like, I ain't having no more of it. I'm, I'm not going to be merciful to you anymore. I'm just going to, you have filled up my wrath and I'm going to pour it out on you. That's why it was such a terrible time. Because God poured out his wrath on a people who had broken his covenant. And they failed to repent. And this is where the abomination of desolation leads to. Leads to that old covenant system being destroyed. Now Christ, in his death, ended any need for the priesthood in the way it was through the line of Aaron, the Levites. He ended the need for any of the utensils in there. He ended the need for uh, all of the uh, ceremony and pomp that went with what was the worship of God in that system? The end of the temple. Why? Because Jesus said there's one greater than the temple here. He ended all of that. He put an end to sacrifice and oblation. In the midst of the final week, he did that. And the scriptures are clear. I don't have to guess. I don't have to say, well, it could be this. or it could. This is what the scriptures show us. Why is that important? Well, what do you hear today? You hear from people today that they think mod the modern geopolitical state of Israel is somehow biblically prophetic. They think that it they think that it's God's chosen people. These people are antichrist. They reject the Christ. You you saw we talked about it, uh, made mention of it at least, um, where Israel was trying to pass a, a a law. It's pretended law, of course, but that's what men do. They pass pretended laws. <clears throat> they tried to pass this law. To if, if you're a Christian and you speak the gospel to somebody and you try to tell them about Christ, well, you can be imprisoned. They're already beating Christians over there. Don't, don't think that Israel is our friend. They're not. They never have been. They're our friend as much as it is that they can gain something from the United States, but they're not our friends. And they're certainly not God's people. Unless they have the faith of Abraham, go and read the book of Galatians, right? So, let me show you a couple of things. We're going to jump over here into the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and we'll probably go over a little bit. So, if you're on Red State Talk Radio, I'll just, I'll just end the show. But if you want to be making your way over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com or BeforeIt'sNews.com, you can do that so that you can finish the rest of this up. So. It, he starts here and he says this. Let me bring this up. Again, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Hebrew audience. Okay? And his whole theme throughout the book is Christ is superior to everything in the Old Testament. The patriarchs, Moses, the prophets... <clears throat> the temple, the sacrifices, 
whatever you can come up with in the Old Testament, Jesus is superior to all of that. And if you go back to that, if you apostatize or if you fall away after you've come to the knowledge of the truth, if you've come into the new covenant community of believers, the ecclesia, the church, if you've come in there, then what happens? You're seeing, he talks about it in chapter six. He says, you see the power of God on display. You've tasted of the heavenly gift. You, you've, you've been around this. You, you're, you're in the new covenant community. And now you want to go back to the old covenant for whatever reason. Then we'll see in a minute, he says, there remains no, there's no sacrifice for sin. Not that there was a, because there was no sacrifice for sin in essence in the Old Testament. Check this out before we get into that. And, and just so this lays a, lays a, it kind of lays a, a little bit of a prelude here. But notice Psalm chapter 40. To, and I'm going to lay this out here to kind of give you that perspective. Because some people think that people in the Old Testament were saved different than the people in the New Testament. They were saved through their obedience, or they were saved through their sacrifices, or they were saved through keeping the, the law. None of that's true. They were saved in the same manner we are, and that is by faith, by grace, in the promised one who would come to take away sin. And that's most clearly seen in the person of Abraham, okay? So, Psalm chapter 40, verse 1, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord, Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And then he says this, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Wait a minute, didn't God command you know, certain sacrifices? Yes, he did. But it wasn't for the sacrifice's sake. It was to turn the hearts of the people. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Wow. But yet, that was part of the law that they were doing. And then he comes on down just a little bit. I'm going to skip a couple of verses here, but I'm going to, this is staying in the context. Verse 9, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have encompassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. I mean, he is in complete and utter desperation. 
And he's crying out to the Lord to save him. And what does he recognize? He recognizes that God wants a broken and contrite spirit. One that's humble before him, not one that's full of arrogance and pride, one that's humble before him. And he says, sacrifice, all that stuff, that's not really what God is after. Not in man. Jesus performed and became a perfect sacrifice. That's why when he offered himself up, he was the high priest and he was the sacrifice. When he offered himself up once for sin, we're going to see that uh, on the other side of the, the end of the show here. He ends that and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. He offers himself once for sin, for all time, once. And then he sits down. His work is done. No chairs were ever in the temple. Why? Because the priest's work was never, ever done. They were constantly slaughtering animals. They were constantly offering them on the altar. This was a constant daily thing they were doing. So. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. This is where we'll start and we'll close out the show here and then pick it up on the other side at sonsoflibertymedia.com. He said, every priest, or excuse me, let's just start at one. Now the things which we have spoken this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. See, for the believer... I, I, it's interesting. I, I talked with a friend of mine. He was he was Jewish. We had some. We actually had some great conversations on the law. And he said, "You know, I love Jesus. I I can't see where Jesus sinned or any of this kind of stuff." But he couldn't see how even today, you know, people who call themselves Jews are manipulating the scriptures to somehow try to please God with it. And I said, "In your system, you don't have a temple. You're not offering sacrifices, and you're trying to make." the worship of God into something God didn't say to do. I said, whereas believers, I said, we keep the feasts, we keep the sacrifice, we keep, you know, we honor the temple, as it were, and and things of this nature because we're in Christ, and Christ is the substance of all those things. I don't have to manipulate what the Day of Atonement is. I already have one who has atoned for me. And so there's a, there's a big difference between those two things. Now, with that said, we're going to end the show here. If you want to catch the rest of this, sonsoflibertymedia.com, top of the page, before it's news.com, top of the page, or Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live is the channel you want to look for. We're going to finish that out there. And uh, Bradley will be with you at 3, and Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning at 6 a.m., bright and early. Talk to you then. See you. Okay, want to welcome everybody coming over from Red State Talk Radio. So let's go back to this as to what he is saying here. He said, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man, for every priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is of necessity that this man, who is he talking about? Christ. Have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. So um, when Moses had went up on the mountain, he wasn't just receiving 
the, the, the Ten Commandments, he was receiving instruction about how the worship of God would be done by the people, okay, including the tent, the tabernacle at the time and all of the other things that were going to be used in it. Okay. So he says, we serve, oh, excuse me, but did, ah. Sorry about that. I jumped ahead of myself. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much more, or excuse me, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established under better promises. The covenant that we live under now, the new covenant, is greater than the old covenant. The promises are greater. In the old covenant, it was a little postage stamp piece of land in the Middle East. In the new covenant, it's the entire earth. In the old covenant, the Spirit of God would come to men. In the new covenant, the Spirit of God comes to live in men. In the old covenant, you had earthly kings. In the new covenant, you have the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's, it's a better covenant. And he says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But the old covenant was nothing more than the types and shadows and the picture book, if you will, that God was giving the people to show them his son. It was to show them his son. And he even gave them a timeline there in Daniel chapter 9 that we read of when his son would come on the scene. This is why Jesus could look at the Pharisees of the day and he would say, guys, you can look at the sky and you can tell when it's going to rain. But you don't know the time of your visitation? What's wrong with you guys? Are you not in the Word? Yet they weren't in the Word. Except to aggrandize themselves to show that they were religious and knowledgeable and all this kind of stuff. But they couldn't see what was right in front of their face. Now, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, if you don't understand that that has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with the geopolitical state of Israel, let me help you here. When you go to Ephesians 2, and I didn't open this up, but I, I thought, well, I'll just kind of expound on it. Ephesians 2, and you read verses 11 and following, what you see is there is a doing away of Jew and Gentile in Christ. They become one new man, the scripture says, and those who are far off Gentiles have now been drawn near through the blood of Christ, and now they are part of the commonwealth of Israel. Now, he's not talking about a geopolitical system. He's talking about the Israel of God, the ecclesia, the church. He's talking about you become a part of the people of God. 
How did that happen? Through the blood of Christ, the one who was cut off in the midst of the final week of Daniel, who confirmed the covenant with many in his blood. That's the Christ. That's what he did. And the writer says this, I'm going to put my laws in their mind. I'm going to write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. This is kind of like what Hosea says. The ones who were my people are now not my people. And the ones who are not my people are now my people. That's what he's doing. And then he says this, verse 11, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, no, the Lord, he's quoting right out of uh, the, the, the prophecy of the new covenant. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Check this out now. Pay attention to what he's saying here. Again, remember he's writing to Hebrews. He's not writing to you and me today. He's not writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Hebrews. That's why the name of the book is Hebrews. That's why all of the discussion of Old Testament stuff. Okay? And that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. What do you think that's an allusion to? It's an allusion to the fact that all of the old covenant stuff has gone bye-bye. And it's utterly going to be destroyed and vanish away. And that does happen in 7080. I think this is why that is it's such an important issue to see is because God didn't want that stuff continuing on. And those pushing for a temple and sacrifices, especially Christians, shame on you. What, what are you thinking? It is an affront to God when he has given us the reality of his son as high priest, or as prophet, priest, and king, as high priest, as a sacrifice for sin, and to say, well, you know, our interpretation of Scripture is there's going to be, we need to get behind this and, and push for the temple to be rebuilt and, and the priesthood instituted. You don't know the Scriptures. What's painfully clear is those things are done away with. And there was a purpose for it, that the new covenant might come, that it might shine forth. And so we go into chapter 9. This leads us into chapter 9. And verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. That's what was in. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, I, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, I'm not, I don't want to get off on this, but I'm just going to hit this because this has come up here in the past couple of months. People talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, the, you know, it's been hidden in Ethiopia. Or it's hid under the, the Dome of the Rock or it's hidden in all these places. And you know what? I'm going to tell you what I think about it. I think it was destroyed in 70 AD. All of that stuff was done away with. It was no longer valid. Christ came to be 
the fulfillment of all of the covenants and to take it out of this little nation state of Israel and to be a light unto the Gentiles that all nations might bow the knee to King Jesus. And people running around like they're raiders of the lost ark, trying to find little artifacts and the, the, the ark of the covenant. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Especially Christians, what are you doing? You have the reality of Christ. What are you doing running after trinkets? It's like you, you went Rome on us. <laughs> you put your feet to Rome. You're going to go on pilgrimages and you're going to look for, for artifacts and all this other stuff. That's silly. Leave that stuff alone. Leave it alone. It means nothing. It's not a reality. And he says this, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things that were thus ordained, the priest went away always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So even the high priest had to go in and offer sacrifice for himself, and he had to offer a sacrifice for the people before he could perform his work. He's got to go through all this ritual cleansing and stuff. Okay, And then he says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle, was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Okay? So keep that in mind. He couldn't be made perfect as pertaining to the conscience. This is what the Spirit of God does to us when we are born again. We are made perfect. In Christ. Why? Because we've been given a righteousness that is not ours. It is Christ's. And is Christ perfect? You bet your bottom dollar he's perfect. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. And then he says this, but Christ. It's kind of like that passage in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our sins. We were under the control of Satan. He was our father. All of these kinds of things. And then it says, but God, who's rich in mercy, right? So he's got all this stuff of what they've been doing. In verse 11, he says, but Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Whew. The priest had to go yearly into the Holy of Holies and do this stuff. Go through all the ceremony. Go through all... Jesus didn't even have to go through all of the pomp and everything. He was perfect. And he entered into the holy place, having made eternal redemption for us possible. Is that what it says? Nope. Having obtained, obtained eternal redemption for us. And then he says this, 
For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now catch this. What happens when you're born again? What happens? The Bible says you become a new creature. Old things are passed away. Become, behold, all things are become new. And what does he say here? The blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works. Remember, he's talking to Hebrews here. The dead works of the system there to what? Just believe in the living God? No, to serve the living God. How do we do that? Ephesians 2 again, 2.10. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. For the demonstration of God's love to man and in the proclamation of the good news of Christ. Verse 15, and for this cause, what's the cause? Put away the dead works, purge your conscience so you can serve the living God. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, it's kind of like if you write a will. Well, the will doesn't really go into effect until you die. And the elements of that will are read out and the properties dis distributed, distributed, boy, I messed that one up, didn't I? Distributed and all of the things of that will are, are unsealed and they're given to the beneficiary by the benefactor. Or the testator. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. If you want the new covenant, the new covenant comes in the blood of Christ. It comes in the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Remember, Moses just got it on top of the mountain. Right? Ministered by angels, the finger of God, writing the, the commands of God in the tablets of stone. There wasn't this sacrificial thing that was going on. He received that directly from God. And he says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. So he brought it down. And that's where he brought out the blood. And he sprinkled the book with it because that's what the people were, were saying amen to. They said, yes, we'll keep that. That sounds good. And then he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people too. Oh, it's definitely a blood covenant. And those who didn't keep it, suffered by giving their own blood, paying for their own sins that way. 
and they came under the judgment of God. And it says, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled the blood both on the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. You remember they're going through there. All the utensils had to be sprinkled with blood. What did the priest do when he went in there into the Holy of Holies? He sprinkled the mercy seat with blood. And almost all things, verse 22, are by the law purged with blood. You go back into the Old Testament, you see it. That's the symbolism to it. You go, well, it isn't very clean. It's bloody. It's nasty. And Yeah. But the point is, is it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Remember, we've been quoting Leviticus about the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says, it's the, it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. That's why you're not supposed to be eating it. And he says this, if... It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. In other words, there is a heavenly temple. There is a, uh, you know, all of that that's set up because Moses constructed what he saw. He constructed it as a picture for the people of the types of things so that they would see it. And he says, but into heaven, excuse me, for Christ is not entered in the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared. Oh, check that out. Did you get that? Stop and think about that a second. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. I mean, if he's going to do it the way they were doing it, then he would be doing it since the foundation of the world, but he wasn't. But now once in the end of the world, is that what it says? That's what it says. When did Jesus come? When did he do his sacrifice? In the end of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What's this end of the world? This is last day stuff. It's the end of that old system. The way the world was for the Jews. It's no longer like that. And he came and he offered himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed in a man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, just like he said when he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples, he said, this is the cup, this is the cup of my blood in the new, in the new covenant given for many. And unto them that look for him, 
shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And if we we'll look here in chapter 10, I'm just going to really quickly hit this part here where he's talking about the fact that these, these sacrifices don't take away sin. None of them did. Not one sacrifice in the Old Testament took away sin. He says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the corners, or excuse me, the comers thereunto perfect. For then they would would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible. For it is not possible. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. If you've been taught that people in the Old Testament were saved through their sacrifice for sin, their obedience to all these kinds of... You've been taught wrong. The blood of bulls and goats, it's, it's impossible. It's not possible <laughs> to take away sin. It just doesn't happen. It was a picture of what Christ would do, but it was not Christ. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. He's echoing David there in Psalm 40 that we read earlier. But a body hast thou prepared me. And I hear some of these people talking about Jesus, you know, God had sex with Mary and this. No, God prepared a body for Jesus to enter into in the womb of Mary. That's what he did. He didn't go have sex with her. She was a virgin. Okay? Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared, prepared, or prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. It's really interesting. When you hear some of the stuff that's taught today, about the sacrificial system and today's modern Israel and all this kind of stuff, it's really incredible to me that these guys talking this stuff, they don't pay attention to what the Scripture says. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. God's not interested in animal sacrifice. He's not. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And again, you go read Luke chapter 24 right there at the resurrection. Or after the resurrection, when Jesus comes to them, he says, All that's written in Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, they speak about me. It's, the Old Testament is about Christ. That's what it's about. It's about Christ. Above when he said, Sacrifice and, off and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, 
neither hadest pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we could go on and on with this, but you get the point. Christ came to fulfill what the Scripture said. And he did so that he might be recognized, if you will, as King of kings and Lord of lords, not just the King of the Jews, not just the King of, of the geopolitical setup of Israel, but that he might call all men everywhere, as we read in the book of Acts. God was, he overlooked certain times of ignorance. And now he calls all men everywhere to repent. To turn from their lawlessness, to bow before the king, to confess him as Lord, and to conduct their lives in accordance with that confession. You know, our forefathers recognize no king but Jesus. None. No king but Jesus. And any law that was written, any law that was written was to be in adherence with the word of God. And if it was not, it was pretended legislation. It was man setting up some kind of standard like the Pharisees did, writing all of these things that they couldn't even keep themselves. If you wonder why I appeal to the Constitution, it's because those guys can't even keep their own laws. They can't even keep it. It's to demonstrate they'll never be able to keep it. They won't keep it. They are just as in rebellion against God as the Romans and the Jews of the first century, which Psalm 2 says they wanted to cast off his bonds, the bonds of the king. And what does God do? He laughs at them. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And I'll tell you what, Psalm 2 is the, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Christ. And I don't know when God's people are going to wake up and say, hey, yeah, we know this, that, and the other, but we're just going to let these wicked men rule over us this way. Let me ask you something. Is that how, is that how the godly men of the Old Testament did? And we have a better covenant and better promises. Is that how they lived? Well, some of them did, but the godly men didn't. The godly men went up against the tyrants, and they went up against the evildoers, and they went up against the wicked rulers. Seeking to establish God's law. And at every turn, what did God do? Did he empower them to overcome their enemies? Yes, he did. Whether it's Gideon, whether it was Samson, whether it was David, whoever it was. We went back to Abraham, right? Going and taking on the kings. For, because they were man-stealing. They had stole his, his nephew. At every turn, what did God do? He was, they were just the instrument of him doing that. 
When are Christians going to do that? When are Christians going to push forth the crown rights of King Jesus upon wicked nations and disciple them and teach them what God has said? When are they going to do that again? Oh, Tim, we can't do that anymore. You know, the devil's running the show and this, that, and the other. Really? I thought Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth is his. Go and make disciples. That's what he said. Does he have it or does he not have it? And if he has it, he tells them he has it so that they can go do what he's commanding them to do. Where are we doing that? Where are we doing that? There was a time where we did that hundreds of years ago here in America. Those things were pushed. We looked at that in that Connecticut uh, covenant. We saw evidences of that in state laws that were written. We saw that listed there in the Mayflower Compact. Men used to have that idea that Jesus really was king. And that we were in his kingdom. And that we were to advance that by establishing ourselves as people under his rule. Not anymore. More it's like a personal kind of thing, or if we even have that. We're not advancing the crown rights of King Jesus by saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm saved from my sin, but I guess I just have to wait till I get to heaven. We're to be pushing forth the crown rights of King Jesus, even in the here and now. And I'm not looking for a utopia. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the obedience to what God has given. He has done away with the old in order that he might establish the new, a new covenant with better promises. And let me tell you this, the greatest of kings, the greatest of kings, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he's established that. Is that the gospel message that we have? Is that, is it just, you know, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven or is it, Something else. Why has God saved us? Unto good works, which he foreordained for us, Ephesians 2.10. And that is to advance his kingdom. It is to advance that. And um, I, I don't see how we can, we can miss those things. Anyway, with that said, I hope that you understand the distinction there. And in these days, with so many people running around with last day's madness stuff, and some of it just gets very bizarre, really bizarre. You have to be discerning, and one of the best ways to be discerning is to go to the Scripture in its context. In its context, let the Scriptures tell you from the Scriptures what they mean. I hope this has been beneficial to you, and I uh, hope you guys have a great day. And Bradley be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And then, Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. Talk to you then. See ya.